0: Hi everybody, this is Eric. Before today's episode, I have a small request. Could you pause the show and take a minute to write us a review in your podcast app? If the blueprint serves you in a meaningful way, it's important that we hear from you for a couple reasons. First, when you write a review, it inspires our team and helps us better understand the value we are bringing to you and what we can double down on. Next, the reviews are a way for you to pay it forward to help other people discover the blueprint because the simple act of leaving a review makes the podcast more visible to others. So hit pause for a minute to find the review button, tell us your feelings about the podcast, then come back and listen to today's episode with Dr. Kyle Gillette. Hi everybody, this is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kyle Gillette, a dual board certified physician in family medicine and obesity medicine, and an expert in optimizing hormone levels to improve overall health and well-being in both men and women. In this episode, we discuss evidence-based habit formation and his six pillars for medicine to live a healthier life. Dr. Gillette also explains why your diet isn't a diet at all, and he goes into some cool information on stress optimization. Kyle is a brilliant physician that I heard on the Huberman Lab podcast. And so I reached out to him to bring him to y'all. This is the first of three episodes he's doing for us. And each one is packed with insightful and actionable information. So now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. This is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you, Eric. My pleasure.
0: Well, as a dual board certified physician in family medicine and obesity medicine, it's undoubtable that you've been exposed to families that are thriving from a health standpoint and some that are kind of struggling from a health standpoint. And there's so many issues in America today that we're facing that are preventable. Are there a few fundamentals or pillars that you think healthy families and individuals should abide by or pay attention to so they can push back on these preventable disease states, and really thrive from a health perspective, both physically and mentally.
1: Absolutely. So your health, whether it's physical, spiritual, mental, I kind of sum that up by saying body, mind, and soul, you use it or you lose it. A lot of individuals know this intuitively, where as you're aging, if you stop doing a certain activity or a sport, and then you just take a long time off, it is exceedingly hard to get it back. Health is the same way. Quicksand is another analogy that I occasionally use. I have my six pillars of medicine. And I guess my shtick is that I say these are more powerful than any medication or supplement. And it is true. So it's not just the same. And those things are diet, exercise, and then you have the four S's for alliteration. Stress, sunlight, sleep, and spirit.
0: I love that. Stress, sunlight, sleep, and spirit. So let's talk about, let's just start with diet. What are some key things that you think everybody should be paying attention to?
1: Diet's pretty individualized because it does, your genetics do matter, your epigenetics matter as well. And your diet affects pretty much all aspects of your health. So there might be a diet that is physically healthy for you, but you're not in the right mental spot to be able to implement that diet. For example, someone with fatty liver disease or NASH, they might, it's easy to recommend them a fasting mimicking diet, which is a diet that's extremely low in fat and calories, et cetera, to help, you know, heal the fatty infiltration of the liver. But that individual might not be at a good time in their life to be able to execute that diet. So there's a lot of things to keep in mind with diet other than just macronutrients, micronutrients, calories in, calories out.
0: Have you heard it said before that the best diet you can do is the one that you can stick to? Yeah. Is there some truth to that? Or is there really like, Hey, it's kind of somewhere in between.
1: There's truth to that. One way that I explain it is that your, your diet is really just not a diet at all. It's a lifestyle and it's evidence-based habit formation. So once you form those habits, intuitive eating is fantastic. There's this big debate about intuitive eating, which basically is what you feel like eating is healthy for you because your biofeedback or how you feel tells you what you should eat. And once you develop those habits of health, and once you're abiding by the six pillars, when possible, within reason, then intuitive eating is fantastic. But if you're in a dysregulated state, if you're in that quicksand, then often you need tools, whether that's aggressive dietary intervention or whether that's even supplements or medications. Those are the, you know, they can be quite strong tools as well. That's going get to you, get you out of the quicksand on top of the sand and then hopefully either to a solid piece of ground where you're more stable um, and you're no longer sinking or you use like a board or even cardboard and you stand on top of that. And you use that in the future to help prevent sinking back in.
0: I love it. What about exercise? I mean, you know, we're in a very time poor society. Everybody's rushed and hurried. And this is one of those things that goes out the window. I have, you know, the evidence is pretty consistent. The World Health Organization and the uh, Department of Health and Human Services says, you know, 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, 300 minutes would be nice to total body strengthening sessions a week. What are you finding in practice is like, I don't the minimum thresholds and where you like to see people every week.
1: A good minimum threshold for everyone is at least two days of resistance training. So strength training anaerobic, however you look at it, something to prevent um, the physical manifestations of metabolic syndrome, keep your metabolism high about three days, depending on the time, so for some people too, of aerobic training. So that's your cardiovascular exercise. So I think the WHO does have pretty reasonable expectations for this. There's a lot of other factors that come into play. For example, your basal metabolic rate, your non-exercise thermogenesis, um, and then also just like literally how much time you have. So some people that are able to, that are very, very strapped for time, a desk that's a treadmill desk or even like a Peloton desk or something like that is a decent option.
0: I was actually on a call today with somebody who's a product manager and he was on one of these treadmill desks. And my thought was, I said, Have you ever just bit it on this, you know, walking, <laughs> yeah. you know, you get, you know, you're drinking tea and then you just fall forward. Anyways, no, I think that would be a phenomenal thing. Aerobic, you know, the, there's different types of aerobic exercise, right? Zone two is kind of that eccentric cardiac hypertrophy. Um, uh, most people, it's around 120 to 140, depends on your age. And yeah. then there's, you know, the high intensity, or actually it's hit and sit. Um, and research is pretty clear that if you can get up to near maximal heart rate, that you can also have really good central and peripheral adaptations that improve longevity. Do you try to hit both ends of the spectrum, like some of the lower intensity work and then also the higher intensity work every week?
1: At least one day of vigorous cardiovascular exercise. Yep. So that could be anything from VO2 max training, which endurance athletes usually kind of concentrate on. Uh, I actually used to do a little bit of track as well. And I remember the VO2 max days and interval days. That's a good way to do it. Hit is also good, which is you know slightly different. The main thing to avoid with your vigorous days is keep in mind that if you need to do it in the morning and then you have a mental task to do later on, uh, you might be a little bit tanked and perform a little bit less than optimally. Also, if you're doing it consistently or too often, it is possible to overtrain. It's not super common, but uh, it is it is possible.
0: If you're someone that's pushing to be your best at work, at home, or in your personal life, then I invite you to sign up for my newsletter, Adaptation. In this weekly newsletter, I curate actionable information and resources on sleep, exercise, mental performance, diet, and so much more. You can sign up now by clicking the link in the show notes or going to www.ericquorum.com. Now, back to the show. 100%. You really need to adapt. It's ideal to adapt your training methodology to your current state of, of biological readiness. Let's talk about stress. Um, from my purview, you know, stress isn't a bad thing. Uh, it's the only way to grow, adapt, and thrive. What does what, what the stress pillar for you mean? Yeah.
1: Stress optimization encompasses many things. It encompasses social health or collective health. So the health within your family or your close friend group. So if your roommates or your spouse or your children are particularly stressed or they're in a state of dysregulated mental health, I suppose, then it's absolutely going to affect you. Whatever intervention you do, it works far better if you do it as a household. So, weight loss is one of these things, specifically losing weight from obese to normal and then maintaining it is far more efficacious if you do it as a family and nicotine cessation actually is as well. but everything is everything is in general those are the two those are two very well studied interventions that we know um, if you do it as a house, it works way better, so that's one part of stress. Another part of stress is you can think about. Uh, you know, your epinephrine function. So med student is a classic example of this. You're on rounds as a med student and the attending starts pimping you. All that means is they start asking you really hard questions. I don't know why they call it that. But that they, really start, bad. Uh, they start asking you these really hard questions and basically they're trying to make you look stupid. Right. But you remember almost all that. Or a patient is coding and the code card goes there and you hear the code going off. You have a big adrenaline surge. If you have an adrenaline surge after you learn something, you remember things better. So you're stressed into remembering it. You have your adrenergic system, and that's things like adrenaline, which is epinephrine, noradrenaline, which is norepinephrine, and dopamine. So a healthy amount of that can be beneficial. Also, a healthy amount of cortisol can be beneficial as well. It kind of helps. I think of it as the corollary to melatonin where it spikes in the morning instead of the evening. So some stress is good. Pathologic stress or being stressed, being too stressed is obviously bad.
0: I call it the low grade fever of stress. If it's chronic acute is okay. Especially yeah. if you can control it, we can't control everything, but uh, chronic stress. Yeah, that's really bad. And I think this is a great segue. You talked about melatonin and cortisol into your sunlight. It's a great way to manipulate it. Um, Is this something you're teaching? Just like, hey, make sure you're getting adequate sunlight in the morning and kind of at the end of the day. Is that kind of the thought process there? Yeah. This also
1: encompasses being outdoors in general. So heat exposure and cold exposure. I put that in there. Sunlight's kind of heat exposure, sort of. Mm. Um, But yeah, just being outdoors. That's where humans were created. That's where kind of like where we're designed to function. So a life completely indoors is not very natural. Um, a common pathologic manifestation of this is called seasonal affective disorder or SAD. And that's essentially sunlight deficiency so bad that it causes depression.
0: Is that, is that the problem that most that people experience when they're like in the uh, Pacific Northwest, when it's just really gloomy all the time?
1: Yeah. That's why they have higher rates of, uh, certain pathologies, including seasonal affective. You can see as the, uh, I believe latitude goes higher and higher. Uh, you have a higher incidence.
0: Interesting. Uh, sleep, uh, that, that, that's where I did my doctoral research. I talk about it all the time on this podcast. So is there anything interesting you want to throw our way? Like I would love to know this I've seen in the literature and what we, the research that I did around optimal sleep durations, what do you find for adults to kind of be like the bandwidth where you try to get people in
1: as far as functioning? It is so widely variable. I have seen cases of people who get so little sleep, you think it would be impossible to function and somehow they still function. So there seems like there's a huge, I guess, standard error range where uh, some people can function extremely well with a low amount of sleep. What we do have quite a few studies on, at least uh, I believe retrospective cohort studies, I could be wrong. But if you look at retrospective cohorts over a long period of time in the past, in general, as you sleep a more medium amount, you tend to live longer. We just don't know if that's causation or correlation. So I usually say yeah, about that bell curve. Yeah, yeah, it's the bell curve. So after nine hours, it appears to be definitely correlated with poor outcomes. And then before six or so hours, it seems to be definitely correlated with poor outcomes. Some of that is, of course, related to the quality of the sleep, your heart rate variability, your deep sleep score, your REM sleep. Um, I'm probably not adding anything to the discussion, but it does seem like there's a huge, a lot of people will say, I only sleep five and a half hours a night. And it's been this way for a super long time. And everybody in my family is this way. And I think that's okay in some cases.
0: Yeah. I mean, certain people have that genetic polymorphism where they can, they can do that. I found that most people that say that they're operating well with six are really not, they just don't even know what good is yet. And then when you kind of unlock the conditions for restful and fulfilling sleep and it kind of, what I found in the research that we did, we actually looked at slow cortical potentials with athletes and seven to nine hours was kind of this optimal range for us uh, creating the state for optimal psychophysiological adaptability. Um, and there's some really cool research in uh, space science looking at DC potentials. We could talk about that offline sometime, but um, seven to nine, but yeah, that six hour to seven hours as you talk to people, it's kind of, sometimes it's an unlock, like, do you really feel rested? Well, this is just kind of how I do, you know, this is what I, my life is like, and you're like, well, let's, let's see what happens. The last one I'm really interested in, I'm thankful that you put this on here, is spirit. What do you mean by spiritual?
1: Spirit or spiritual health is just how you define your Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So on the top of the pyramid, fortunately, we live in developed countries where most of our basic physiologic needs are met. So the top of the pyramid is self-actualization. Why am I put here and what is my purpose? And for some people that's like highly religious, I think that it comes a lot down to, are we designed and created via intelligent design or is there a different purpose? And even if we're not designed or created, then a lot of people still feel a lot of connection or purpose as it relates to their environment. Or our ecosystem. So, everybody finds this in some way. There's no such thing as um, an aspiritual person.
0: So, what do you think? Are we intelligently designed?
1: I believe in God and I believe mm-hmm. in Jesus. Uh, I'm a Christian. And yeah. the main evidence of that is how he has worked in my own life. So, uh, you know, this is something that you cannot prove. Um, there's been lots of science attempted at it. And at the end of the day, it's inconclusive. Um, It's hard to go back that far. So um, the evidence of it I see in my own life. I don't consider myself a religious person, but I am certainly spiritual. You see a lot of people on their deathbeds as you go through your medical education. And it's interesting to see many, many people who have not been religious and would say that they are the least spiritual person become very spiritual towards the end. And a lot of times, that's kind of like one last positive thing for their health.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that. I'm also a Christian and uh, very open about that on this show. I don't want to be one. Of, I want to be one of those places where people can come and talk about authentically what they believe in, wherever that is on the spectrum, Absolutely. and how that impacts their health and wellness. So, let me recap here: your six pillars are diet, exercise, stress, sunlight, sleep, and spirit. I think that is. Wonderful. Thank you so much for discussing this today. I'm excited to have you back on.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you for chatting with me.
0: Thanks for joining Dr. Gillette and I today on the show and make sure to look for his next two upcoming episodes with us. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode.